if you've got your Bible with you, we're going to be in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 as uh, we really land this whole series we've been walking through called The Glory Belongs. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. This is not one of those messages where my goal is to work our way to an application point. I'm not going to, so for those of you who love taking notes and you know you like your nice structured three points and then three applications, uh, it's not going to be one of those sort of messages. Uh, I'm not going to finish with uh, sort of a call that you would um, join a small group or, or three things you can do better by next week. It, it's really not that type of message at all. But my goal really is to fundamentally shift your view about how the world operates. I, I want to reveal to you this, this biblical principle that if you can grab a hold of it, if you can actually grasp what it means for your life and how you, you live, it will change everything about everything. And to give you that principle right from the get-go, right at the start of tonight's message, this is it. Everything exists for the glory of God. That if that is the one thing you take away from tonight, that, that is all, I would be happy with that, that everything exists for the glory of God, that God's glory, it's his manifest holiness on display for the world to see and, and everything. Everything you own, everything you do, uh, every situation you go through, your work, your family, the stuff you own, all of it is pointing towards his glory. But see, because that idea runs so contrary to this world we live in, what I need to do tonight is I need to sort of break down your preconceptions as to how this world is supposed to operate. And then I'm going to reconstruct those, those thoughts in a way that actually line up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as I said, if you've got your Bible with you, we're going to be in Acts chapter 12. Uh, and where we're jumping into things tonight, we're, we're coming in at this t- the tail end of the series of events that takes place around 10 to 14 years into the life of the church. But, you know, the gospel is spreading. It's moving all the way up and down the, the coastline. It's going to the very edge uh, of the world. But back home in Jerusalem, the church is facing immense persecution at the hands of a man named King Herod. And look, in case you're new to Bible study, this isn't the same King Herod um, from your nativity scene, uh, the one that tries to have all the the babies killed in Bethlehem. This isn't the Herod that had John the Baptist killed. Uh, This is a Herod known as Herod Agrippa. So it's the grandson of the first Herod uh, and nephew of the second. And and so what has taken place so far is is Herod has had the apostle James arrested uh, and, and then he has him killed, and, and seeing this actually buys him favor with the Jewish populace. He goes ahead and, and he arrests the apostle Peter as well. And, and his goal there is to do the exact same thing. He's going to arrest him, he's going to leave him locked up for seven days over the Passover festival, and then he's going to execute him as well. But what we saw last week is God steps in, and, and through miraculous intervention of an angel, Peter is rescued. The chains fall from his feet, he, he gets up and he, and he literally walks out through the prison doors with his, uh, prisoner, his prison guards, none the wiser. And, and so what you need to know about the story as we jump back into it tonight is, is that means Herod has been made an absolute fool of. That, that Herod arrested a really well-known public figure, the Apostle Peter. And he put him in like the highest security prison he could possibly find. He, he chose six elite Roman soldiers to guard him day and night. Two of them literally chained to his legs at all time. And yet somehow, the morning of the execution comes and Peter is nowhere to be seen. And look, like Herod's pumped up this event, right? 
This, this whole move was a PR campaign for him. So he, he's put out the flyers, he had the dates set, the billboards were painted, and yet the crowd is gathered, everyone is ready to see this execution, and it's just Herod there awkwardly twiddling his thumb, fingers saying, I don't know what's happened to him. That, that Herod has been made an absolute fool of. And, and that actually plays into the story we're about to see because Herod, Herod is the sort of person that thinks this life is all about him. That just like his uncle, just like his grandfather before him, Herod thinks the whole world exists for his glory. I mean, you just have to look at the way he lived his life. He took every opportunity he could to maneuver and scheme to ensure he was in the right position at the right time, that uh, he groveled and he plotted so that he could get the title of king, Uh, that through the transition of not one but two Roman emperors, he made sure he ended up in a higher position with more power, more authority, and more glory that everything Herod did was to serve one man, and the name of that man was Herod. In fact, the only reason Herod believed in God at all was because it actually brought him more sway with the Jewish population. Uh, That his somewhat dubious Jewish heritage and his, his faith allowed him influence with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and so he played himself up as this, this good, God-fearing Jew who was fighting for, uh, with the Romans to to. Uh, get Jerusalem restored as its own kingdom. And the only problem is he did just enough of the God stuff to make the Jewish people happy. But not enough that he'd have to give up his his comforts and, and his privileges and the luxuries of the Roman Empire. That for Herod, God was simply a means to an end. But, but look, I, I say all of that right at the get-go tonight because we need to understand the sort of person Herod was and the fact that Herod's made a fool. And so he's angry, he's upset, his ego has been bruised, and so he's on the lookout for someone that that he can cause to to lift up his name again so he can feel good about himself. All right, Acts chapter 12, starting at verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And so they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And so on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, he he took his seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them. All right, so so what I think is happening here is, is Herod gets out of Jerusalem, right? He leaves the place where he's lost face over the whole Peter incident. And the first thing he does is he finds some people that he knows he can bully and pressure into making much of them. And see, because this event really happened, we actually have some extra biblical uh, references that flesh out the story a little bit more for us. Uh, that Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, tells us this is all taking place during a massive festival, a celebration to, to Caesar that Herod is throwing. So there's a big party, it's lasting for a couple of days, and when uh, Herod is taking a seat upon the throne here, it's this, this big open-air amphitheater he's sitting down in. And Josephus even goes as far as to describe the robes that Herod was wearing. That Josephus writes, on the second day, he put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful. And he came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays, shone out in a surprising manner. And it was so splendid that it spread a horror over those that looked intently upon it. 
that Herod is dressed up like a combination of Elvis Presley and Elton John, and he's covered in sequins and glitter and sparkles, and he's shining so much so that he's lighting up the whole room when he walks into it. That even Herod's outfit screams out, it's all about me. And look, church, can I just say, in the world we live in, in the culture we find ourselves, that that idea that everything is about me, that is the dominant mindset of our entire world. That everyone from Mark Zuckerberg and Oprah to every marketing executive in the entire world would have you believe that everything around you should exist to make you feel good, to, to make you satisfied, to make you happy, to make you content, and ultimately to give you the glory. And how dare the things of this world not line up so that you can get exactly what you want. I mean, isn't that the story that, that every single Instagram post tells you? That, you know, uh, it, it's all about you, that you just need to do whatever it takes so that you can find yourself, so that you can be satisfied. Isn't that the, the sales pitch of, of every self-help book you, you've ever read? That, you know, if you just wake up 30 minutes earlier, or if you just add a meditation time to your day, or if you just drink green smoothies, then you will get everything you've ever wanted. I, I mean, ha have you seen a beer commercial lately? Well, what do they show? They show a whole bunch of really young, athletic people with abs playing beach volleyball, right? And the lie that ad is trying to tell you is that if you just consume this product, then you'll get everything you've ever dreamed of. You'll feel younger, you'll have more fun in your life, you'll get a six-pack, and I promise you that that's not what happens if you go ahead and you drink that product, I promise you. That everything around us is just screaming out, it's all about me. And, and can I just say, if that's the way things are supposed to work, if this whole world exists to make us feel good and it's all about me, it's all about the self, that everything should, should work out for our good, if that's the way things are supposed to work, then can I just say, the world is a lot to answer for. Because if, if that's the way it's supposed to be, then, then let's be honest, you should hit every green light on your way into work in the morning. That everyone who's driving 80 in the 100 zone, they should pull out your way, that you, know, you should never have a bad hair day or your makeup not work out, that if life is all about you, husbands, every morning your wife should wake up in a really, really good mood. And just to make sure I'm being balanced here, wives, your husbands should never once complain about having to take out the trash or clean the house or do the dishes, and I won't ask for our men's on either of those. That if life is all about you, your boss should be continually satisfied with every job you complete. Uh, uni students, every exam you submit, every assignment you take part of, you should get straight A's in. Uh, your jeans should always fit you, your haircut should be great, you should never get pimples, that everything in this life should make you look good. I don't know about you guys, but that's not the way the world seems to work for me. See, the truth of the matter is that this life, it's not about us. It's not about our happiness or our satisfaction. This world it exists for one purpose, and it's God. That everything is about God. And don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean God isn't for you. God is definitely for you. That anyone who would die for you is for you. The cross leaves no other explanation. It's just, it's just that this life, it's not about you. And look, I think we've all had moments where we realize that's the case, right? 
When we realize that maybe, just maybe, things are a little bit bigger than everything that's going on in our head and in our lives. I mean, have you ever stood on like the shoreline at a beach? Early in the morning when there's no one around and there's no noise, there's, there's just you and, and the waves and the wind and the ocean and just thousands of kilometers in every direction. You know what no one says in that moment? No one beats their chest and goes, I bench 100 kilograms. Or I earn a, a six-figure salary. No one says, I got 1,000 likes on my Instagram post or, or I got the big house or whatever it is. No, no one thinks they're all that matters in that moment. Or I mean, have you ever been out in the middle of nowhere? And you know, there's no light pollution, there's no uh, street lights to block your view and you just look up into the sky and it's just like the Milky Way spread out before you. No matter how successful you are, no matter how well you've done in this life, no one in that moment thinks everything is about them. No, what you probably feel in that moment is really, really small in comparison. That John Piper, when talking about this, says, it is the greatness of God. It's about the greatness of God and not the significance of man. That God made man small and the universe big to say something about himself. And see, what I want you guys to have this evening is I want you to have this Copernicus moment. That Copernicus was the first guy to realize that mathematically it did not make sense for the sun to orbit the earth that it just didn't work out, it didn't line up with the way things were supposed to work out. The only way things would actually line up with reality is if everything going on here at Earth, it revolved around the sun. And Copernicus, he was so aware that this idea ran contrary to the world around him that he didn't publish his findings until two months before he died. And it was only 50 years later when Galileo picked up the same work that that information went public. The church, our lives should tell the same story, that, that it's not about us, that, that everything in our lives, everything that exists, it, it revolves around the Son and his name is Jesus Christ, that everything should point to the glory of God. All right, some, some of you still unbind this, so let's put some verses to everything I've just said. Uh, Isaiah 48, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. That everything God does is for his glory. It's for the praise of his name. It's so that his manifest holiness may be put on display for the world to see. Uh, that Isaiah 43, 6, God created us for his glory. Everyone who was called by my name, I created for my glory. I formed and I made them for my name. Jeremiah 13, 11, God called Israel for his glory. I made the whole house of Israel cling to me that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. Psalm 106, 8, God rescued Egypt out, sorry, God rescued Israel out of Egypt for his glory. Yet he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. Romans 9, 17, God raised Pharaoh for his glory. Just stop and think about that. A man who literally walked around telling everyone that he was God. God put that man in authority, gave that man power, allowed that man to, to set an entire nation into slavery for God's own glory. And then in Exodus 14, we're told that God defeated Pharaoh for his glory. 
Ezekiel 20, 14, God spared Israel in the wilderness for his glory. 2 Samuel 7, God gave Israel victory in the promised land for his glory. Ezekiel 36, God sent Israel into and then brought them out of captivity in Babylon for his glory. And just in case you think it's only the Old Testament that God does stuff for his own glory, uh, in Luke 2, Jesus was born with angels heralding his birth, saying it is for the glory of God. In John 17, everything Jesus did on this earth, every word he said, every action he partook in, it was for the glory of God. John 12, Jesus died for the glory of God. Uh, That John 12, 27, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. 2 Corinthians 4, God reveals himself to us for his glory. For God has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That Ephesians 1, God chooses us for his glory. In him we were chosen in order that we might be for the praise of his glory. That Romans 9.23, God saved us. Our very salvation, church, is for the glory, of God, the glory of God. It is done in order to make known the riches of his glory. And church, I could go on and on and on. I had about like 40 other glory verses I could have walked through tonight that everything God does is for his glory. Everything that exists Everything that was and is and is to come, its sole purpose in this world is to give glory to God. That all of creation is like this massive billboard and it's pointing at one thing and it's not our happiness, it's not our satisfaction, it's not our comfort, it is the glory of God. And so what that means is we fundamentally have two options for how we live this life. That that either we do things the way the world says to do it, And we do things for our glory. We make much of ourselves. We we do things so that that everything is all about us or else we line ourselves back up with all of creation and we live for the glory of God. That either we make much of ourselves or else we make much of God. And see, what Herod is going to do, Herod is going to choose to make much of himself. He's going to heap glory upon glory upon glory upon himself. All right, so so Herod is standing before this crowd, right? He's in this this massive amphitheater, and he's dressed in in this immaculate outfit, and he's shining, and he's glittering, and it it looks amazing. And and in order to carry more favor with him, this crowd is going to heap praises upon his name. In fact, what we're about to see is they're actually going to call him a god. And despite the fact he calls himself like a god-fearing Jew, He's just going to roll with it because it sounds good to him. Uh, Verse 22, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. And just because I've got Josephus' account of the story, I'm going to read that as well. His flatterers cried out that he was a God. And then they added, be merciful to us, for previously we have only shown you honor as was deserving of a man. Yet from now on, we will honor you as one who is superior to mortal nature. But you can picture the scene, right? He's up there on his throne and this crowd is scattered before him and you know, they're trying to heap praises upon his name so they're throwing like flowers at his feet and then the chant starts and it's like the voice of a God and not a man, the voice of a God and not a man and Herod's just out there at the top just soaking it all in. But because as far as Herod is concerned, he deserves that. 
that things are finally as they should be. He deserves to be called a God. He deserves to receive the praise. He deserves to receive all the glory. And church, what we need to know tonight is that God is not in the business of sharing his glory with anyone who would take it for themselves. That God, God will give his glory to us if we submit ourselves to him, that, that Jesus talks about that, that he will give his glory to us because we have glorified him. But, but praises that are due only to God's name, he will not allow another to take. But again, Isaiah 48, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And so what happens in verse 23 is immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. And we're told why. Because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. How's that for a verse to have to preach through? Uh, <laughs> but Josephus writes, a severe pain arose in his belly and he began in a most violent manner. And he looked upon his friends and he said, I who you have called a God and commanded presently to depart this life. I, who was called by you immortal, am immediately hurried away to death. And when he said this, his pain became most violent. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the 54th year of his age and the seventh year of his reign. That one uh, modern-day medical expert's opinion of what happened to Herod uh, was that his death was caused by the rupture of a hydatid cyst. I'm just going to read the description, and I apologize if you're squeamish. Uh, it's a cyst caused by masses of maggots eating the victim from the inside out, putrefying the body as though it were already a corpse. It's a pretty grisly way to go, right? And just in case you think it's only, this is like a one-off situation, right? That this is the only time God does this sort of thing. Uh, well, every other Herod in the Bible... The, the three Herods that uh, Sandy walked through a couple of weeks ago, each and every one of them, they faced equally grisly fates. Uh, Herod the Great, so Christmas Herod, the one that tries to get all the babies killed in Jerusalem. The whole reason he did that, right, was because he had worked and he had like maneuvered and manipulated in order to get the title of king. And then these three wise men, that they stroll into his court and they say, where is the, this child that is going to be called king of the Jews? And Herod could not live with there being another king after all the work he had put into it. And so you know how he died? He died of a mysterious illness so severe and so painful that it simply became known as Herod's evil. That we're told his stomach began to rot, maggots began breeding in his groin, he had a constant watery flow from his bowels, and he had an inflammation that led to madness. And that it got so bad that he actually tried to kill himself, but he was prevented. And yet within 12 months, probably around that time, no more than 12 months of ordering that decree to kill all the babies, Herod breathed his last. All right, so then Herod Antipas, the second Herod mentioned in the Bible, uh, this is the one that arrested John the Baptist, and the reason he did that is because he had heard of John's rising fame, and, and John was doing things that sort of brought shame to his name. And then later he had John the Baptist executed because he didn't want to lose face in a party. Uh, the same Herod who played a role in Jesus' crucifixion, and we're told the only reason he did that was because he wanted to be a part of everything that was going on. That he wanted to interview Jesus and, and maybe see some miracles. 
before Jesus went to the cross. Well, that Herod was eventually exiled to Spain where he lost everything he ever had. Everything he'd ever worked for, every title he'd ever received, and he died at no one in the middle of nowhere. And it's not just the Herods that throughout the Old Testament, you, you have these stories of kings who would call themselves God, who, who would lift themselves up to, to the title of Godhood, and God was having none of it. Uh, in Ezekiel 28, God, speaking to the king of Tyre, says, because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a God, Therefore, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom. So will you still say that I am a God in the presence of those who kill you? The church, God will not share his glory with anyone who would attempt to rip it out of his hands. And see, what's more, we actually need to understand that each and every one of us, we will glorify God. That there is no alternative, that, that every person who ever has walked the face of the earth, we will glorify God. That either we will glorify God by submitting to him, or else we will glorify God by being judged by him. Because when Jesus comes back, there are two options we all have, right? Either we can bow, or else we can bow. That either Jesus will be first in our life as savior and king, or else he will be first in our life as judge that God's glory will either come at our expense or it will be for our benefit. In fact, if you actually follow through to the end of the story and you jump into the book of Revelation, what you'll find is there's gonna be a day when there'll be a crowd from every nation and every tongue and every people and every tribe where every angelic being and all of creation itself will fall down at the feet of Jesus and they will sing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessings and honor and glory forever and ever. In fact, in, in new creation, when sin is removed and the presence of, of God dwells in the midst of his people forever, what we're told is that the glory of God will be so all-encompassing that the city has no need of sun nor moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. That, that in heaven, church, God's glory will be like the air we breathe. It will be the light by which we see things, the, the thing by which we exist forever and ever and ever. That, that God's glory, his, whole, his manifest holiness on display, it's just like this weightiness, this, this heaviness that, that it just forms its own gravity and it consumes everything until everything gets sucked into it and everything in all of creation glorifies God. That church, the whole point of heaven, it's not about us. That that. It's not just about the fact that we're going to have mansions and there's going to be streets paved with gold and we're going to see all our loved ones again, that yes, all that is true, but the point of heaven is God. Heaven isn't for people who don't want to go to hell. Heaven is for people who want God and there in eternity, they will glorify him forever and ever and ever. That church in the end, God will be glorified because everything exists for his glory. say all of that, and, and maybe the band can actually start coming up as we, we land this. I say all of that not, not to make you small. I, I mean, you are small in comparison to the universe, but that, that's not the point of tonight's message. But I, I just know, if you can actually grab a hold of what this means, if you can actually process and understand that everything is for the glory of God, that it's not about you, then I'm telling you, it will free you up like nothing else ever will. And see, if I'm honest, the, 
The reason I think we find it difficult to, to give God the glory in the trial and in the triumph is because our default and the mindset of the world around us is to think life is all about us. Because if life is about you, then it doesn't make sense when life is hard. It doesn't make sense when you go through trials and things suck. And if life is all about you, then it definitely doesn't make sense to give God any glory when you get success because, well, you've earned it, right? You deserve it. But if this life is all about us, then our trials are meaningless, they have no purpose, there is no rhyme or reason to them, and it is just the chaotic happenings of a chaotic and meaningless world. And if this life is all about us, then our triumphs are empty, and they have no purpose other than making us happy for a moment. But church, if the world's about God, our trials have more meaning, more purpose, more intentionality than you could ever dare dream to imagine. And our triumphs, our triumphs are so much greater because they don't stop with us, right? Because when we experience success, when things go well in our life, yes, we get praise, yes, we feel good, but it doesn't stop with us because we get to turn to God and we get to give God the glory. That our success and and our triumphs, that they turn us to face God and we get to sing His praise through. I mean, church, have you ever considered the reason you're going through the pain you are going through in your life is so that God may be glorified in how well you suffer? That people might look at the pain you are going through, the situation that makes no sense and there's no explanation for it, and yet despite your circumstances, you continue to praise God. You continue to glorify God in the middle of that mess. Church, that glorifies God like nothing else does. Have you ever thought that the reason you're in the marriage you find yourself in, the reason God has put you with that person for the rest of your life is so that you can show the world what it means to love someone who is broken and sinful and falls short? Because that's the way Jesus loved us first. That we can love someone despite their sins because church, when you do that, that glorifies God. Have you ever considered the reason you're in the workplace you're in? It's not just for your paycheck. It's not so you can just check, uh, click in and click out and do your nine to five. It's so that God can be glorified there. That you can show the people in this world around you what it looks to, to work in a godly way. What it looks like to honor authority when they definitely don't deserve your honor. What, what it looks to, to, like to love people who don't know Jesus because church, that glorifies God. And, and it's the triumphs as well, Right? I mean, have you ever considered that the success you're experiencing in your life, it's not just so you can get a raise, it's not so just you can get a promotion or or look good or have the big house, it's so that you can give glory to God through it. That people can turn to you and they can praise your name for a job well done or for good grades or for a promotion and they can heap glory on you and instead of receiving it for yourself, you get to cast your crown at the feet of Jesus and say, well, no, actually it was God that gave me this job. Well, actually, no, it was God that gave me this promotion. Well, actually, no, it was God who gave me my success and my wife and my GPA and my good grades, and I will glorify Him with all of it. Church, if our life is all about God, then our lives have so much meaning. There's so much purpose to it, and things just make sense because regardless of the, of the season, regardless of the situation, we can turn to God and we can glorify. 
And so as we finish this off, I just, I just want to ask you one really simple question. Do you live your life as though that's true? Are you living like this life isn't about you, but it is all for the glory of God? That Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Is that how you're living? Because I, I promise you, if, if it is, you will find more freedom there than you ever thought was possible. And look, I know I said this wasn't gonna be a message with an application point, but if you right now are sitting in your chair and you're thinking about what this means and maybe you're going right now, Liam, I don't think I am. I don't think I am living for the glory of God. How do I start doing that? And I thought long and hard about how you should answer that and I sort of came up with two ways of responding. One begins with the end in mind, the other begins with the next step. And I know we, we think in different ways, so I'll just give you both. So, so the next step, if you wanna live for the glory of God, then the next thing you should do is the next thing that glorifies God the most. That the question you should ask yourself every moment of every day for the rest of your life is what can I do next? that would glorify God the most. And when you're on the bus on your way to uni or work on Monday morning, what can you do next that would glorify God the most? When you're sitting in your office at, at, at your computer, what is the thing you can do next that would glorify God the most? When you're driving home with your, your family or your wife or your friends, what is the next thing you can do that glorifies God the most? And it's not always a super religious answer because everything we do is supposed to be for the glory of God. So maybe the way you glorify God on the way home is you just turn to your wife and you tell her you love her, that you appreciate her and you're really grateful for her in your life because that glorifies God. Maybe the way you glorify God in your office on Monday morning is, is you get there and you just get to work. And, and you don't go and gossip at the water fountain. You don't take 10 breaks every hour. You just put in all the effort so that God may be glorified in your and maybe the way you glorify God on your bus, on your, the bus ride into uni is not necessarily like evangelizing. I mean, God could be calling you to do that. Maybe instead of scrolling through TikTok or Instagram, you, you just open up your Bible app and you let God speak to you because that glorifies God. Right, and this is the final thing I'll, I'll land with. If you wanna begin with the end in mind, and the question you need to ask yourself, and this, this question absolutely destroyed my life, so be careful if you ask it of yourself. If you could do one thing for the glory of God and you knew it wouldn't fail, what would that thing be? And I, and I promise you, if you actually let that question ring true in your heart, it, it will ruin your life. Because the only way you can faithfully answer it is if you lay down all of your desires. If you lay down all your wants and, and, and all your dreams and you just turn to God and say, God, if you could do one thing with my life, what would it be? And then the, the inkling, the second you have an, an inkling of, of what that answer could be, the, the question you follow it up with is, well, why aren't you doing it? 
See, my response to that question, when it was asked of me, and I, I thought about it for a while, is I would spend the rest of my days opening up God's word and teaching it to God's people. And that meant laying aside all of like seven years of study for a job that I really enjoyed and paid really well and had, had good prospects for, but it glorified God to do what God was calling me to do. And so at the end of the day, God will be glorified. He will. That's the only option for how this world operates. And yet for whatever reason, he wants us to partner with him that we may choose to glorify him in all that we do. So Lord, we, we, we just come before you tonight and we just glorify your name. We make much of you in this place because you are worth making much of. And God, we, we just pray that you would be glorified in our pain, that, that you would be glorified in our relational struggles, that you would be glorified in our broken situations and our failed relationships, that you would be glorified in the situation that makes no sense to us, Lord, because you are working in that situation. And we pray you would be glorified in our triumphs as well. Lord, that you would be glorified when we get that raise, you'd be glorified when we, we get that, that, that good job, Lord, or we, you'd be glorified when we get that house. When things go well in our lives, we would not let it terminate with us who will turn and fix our eyes upon you and glorify you. And, and Lord, I, I just pray for every heart here. But that you would just do a work in our lives. That, that, that question would just begin ringing in our heart and our head every day, of, of every moment, every second for the rest of our lives, God. What is the next thing I can do? that would glorify God the most in this situation. And, and Lord, I, I pray that that second question would, would come up in our, in our hearts and, and in our devotional times and in our quiet time and, and we're driving into work, Lord, that if we could do one thing for your glory and we knew it would not fail, what would that be? And Lord, I, I pray you would put God-sized dreams in our heart, not for our sake, not for, for our name, but all for your glory. So we pray this all in your name. Amen. Why don't you stand together and we're just gonna sing one last song of praise and, and we're gonna glorify God together in it.